Section twenty one of Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Noel Badrian. Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume One, eighteen thirty five to eighteen forty two by hans christian andersen translated by h p paul what the moon saw part two eleventh evening i will give you a picture of pompeii said the moon i was in the suburb in the street of tombs as they call it where the fair monuments stand in the spot where ages ago the merry youths their temples bound with rosy wreaths danced with their fair sisters of lace now the stillness of death reigned around german mercenaries in the neapolitan service kept guard played cards and diced and a troop of strangers from beyond the mountains came into the town accompanied by a sentry they wanted to see the city that had risen from the grave illuminated by my beams and I showed them the wheel ruts in the streets paved with broad lava slabs. I showed them the names on the doors and the signs that hung there yet. They saw in the little courtyard the basins of the fountains ornamented with shells, but no jets of water gushed upward, no song sounded forth from the richly painted chambers where the bronze dog kept the door. It was the city of the dead, only vesuvius thundered forth his everlasting hymn each separate verse of which is called by men an eruption we went to the temple of venus built of snow-white marble with its high altar in front of the broad steps and the weeping willows sprouting freshly forth among the pillars the air was transparent and blue and black vesuvius formed the background with fire ever shooting forth from it like the stem of a pine tree above it stretched the smoky cloud in the silence of the night like the crown of the pine but in a blood-red illumination among the company was a lady singer a real and great singer i have witnessed the homage paid to her in the greatest cities of europe when they came to the tragic theatre they all sat down on the amphitheatre steps, and thus a small part of the house was occupied by an audience, as it had been many centuries ago. The stage still stood unchanged with its walled side scenes and the two arches in the background through which the beholders saw the same scene that had been exhibited in the olden times, a scene painted by nature herself, namely, the mountains between sorrento and amalfi the singer gaily mounted the ancient stage and sang the place inspired her and she reminded me of a wild arab horse that rushes headlong on with snorting nostrils and flying mane her song was so light and yet so firm anon i thought of the mourning mother beneath the cross at golgotha so deep was the expression of pain and just as it had done thousands of years ago the sound of applause and delight now filled the theatre happy gifted creature all the hearers exclaimed 
Five minutes more, and the stage was empty. The company had vanished, and not a sound more was heard. All were gone. But the ruins stood unchanged, as they will stand when centuries shall have gone by, and when none shall know of the momentary applause, and of the triumph of the fair songstress, when all will be forgotten and gone, and even for me this hour will be but a dream of the past. Twelfth Evening I looked through the window of an editor's house, said the moon. It was somewhere in Germany. I saw handsome furniture, many books, and a chaos of newspapers. Several young men were present. The editor himself stood at his desk, and two little books, both by young authors, were to be noticed. This one has been sent to me, said he. I have not read it yet. What think you of the contents? Oh, said the person addressed, he was a poet himself, it is good enough, a little broad, certainly, but you see, the author is still young. The verses might be better, to be sure. The thoughts are sound, though there is certainly a good deal of commonplace among them. But what will you have? You can't be always getting something new. That he'll turn out anything great, I don't believe. But you may safely praise him. He is well read, a remarkable oriental scholar, and has good judgment. It was he who wrote that nice review of my Reflections on Domestic Life. We must be lenient towards the young man. But he is a complete hack, objected another of the gentlemen. Nothing worse in poetry than mediocrity, and he certainly does not go beyond this. Poor fellow, observed a third, and his aunt is so happy about him. It was she, Mr. Editor, who got together so many subscribers for your last translation. Ah, the good woman! Well, I have noticed the book briefly. Undoubted talent, a welcome offering, a flower in the garden of poetry, prettily brought out, and so on. But this other book, I suppose the author expects me to purchase it. I heard it is praised. He has genius, certainly, don't you think so? Yes, all the world declares as much, replied the poet, but it has turned out rather wildly. The punctuation of the book, in particular, is very eccentric. It'll be good for him if we pull him to pieces and anger him a little, otherwise he will get too good an opinion of himself. But that would be unfair, objected the fourth. Let us not carp at little faults, but rejoice over the real and abundant good that we find here. He surpasses all the rest. Not so. If he is a true genius, he can bear the sharp voice of censure. There are people enough to praise him. Don't let us quite turn his head. Decided talent, wrote the editor, with the usual carelessness. That he can write incorrect verses may be seen in page 25, where there are two false quantities. We recommend him to study the ancients, etc. I went away, continued the moon, and looked through the windows in the aunt's house. There sat the bepraised poet, the tame one. All the guests paid homage to him, and he was happy. I sought the other poet out, the wild one. Him also I found in a great assembly at his patron's, where the tame poet's book was being discussed. I shall read yours also, said Makenos. But to speak honestly, you know, I never hide my opinions from you. 
I don't expect much from it, for you are much too wild, too fantastic. But it must be allowed that, as a man, you are highly respectable. A young girl sat in a corner, and she read in a book these words. In the dust lies genius and glory, but every day talent will pay. It's only the old, old story, but the piece is repeated every day. Thirteenth Evening The moon said, Beside the woodland path there are two small farmhouses. The doors are low, and some of the windows are placed quite high, and others close to the ground, and whitethorn and barberry bushes grow around them. The roof of each house is overgrown with moss and with yellow flowers and house-leek. Cabbage and potatoes are the only plants cultivated in the gardens, but out of the hedge there grows a willow-tree, and under the willow-tree sat a little girl, and she sat with her eyes fixed upon the old oak-tree between the two huts. It was an old, withered stem. It had been sawn off at the top, and the stork had built his nest upon it and he stood in his nest, clapping with his beak. A little boy came and stood by the girl's side. They were brother and sister. "'What are you looking at?' he asked. "'I'm watching the stork,' she replied. "'Our neighbours told me that he would bring us a little brother or sister today. Let us watch to see it come.' "'The stork brings no such thing,' the boy declared. "'You may be sure of that.' Our neighbour told me the same thing, but she laughed when she said it, and so I asked her if she could say, On my honour, and she could not, and I know by that the story about the stork is not true, and that they only tell it to us children for fun. But where do babies come from then? asked the girl. Why, an angel from heaven brings them under his cloak, and no man can see him, and that's why we never know when he brings them. At that moment there was a rustling in the branches of the willow tree, and the children folded their hands and looked at one another. It was certainly the angel coming with the baby. They took each other's hand, and at that moment the door of one of the houses opened, and the neighbour appeared. Come in, you two, she said. See what the stork has brought. It is a little brother. And the children nodded gravely at one another, for they had felt quite sure already that the baby was come. Fourteenth evening. I was gliding over the Loonberg heath, the moon said. A lonely hut stood by the wayside, a few scanty bushes grew near it, and a nightingale, who had lost his way, sang sweetly. He died in the coldness of the night. It was his farewell song that I heard. The morning dawn came glimmering red, I saw a caravan of emigrant peasant families who were bound to Hamburg, there to take ship for America, where fancied prosperity would bloom for them. The mothers carried their little children at their backs, the elder ones tottered by their sides, and a poor starved horse tugged at a cart that bore their scanty effects. The cold wind whistled, and therefore the little girl nestled closer to the mother who, looking up at my decreasing disc, thought of the bitter want at home, and spoke of the heavy taxes they had not been able to raise. The whole caravan thought of the same thing. Therefore, the rising dawn seemed to them a message from the sun of fortune that was to gleam brightly upon them. They heard the dying nightingale sing. It was no false prophet, but a harbinger of fortune. 
the wind whistled therefore they did not understand that the nightingale sung fair away over the sea thou hast paid the long passage with all that was thine and poor and helpless shalt thou enter canaan thou must sell thyself thy wife and thy children but your griefs shall not last long behind the broad fragrant leaves lurks the goddess of death and her welcome kiss shall breathe fever into thy blood fare away fare away over the heaving billows and the caravan listened well pleased to the song of the nightingale which seemed to promise good fortune day broke through the light clouds country people went across the heath to church the black-gowned women with their white head-dresses looked like ghosts that had stepped forth from the church pictures all around lay a wide dead plain covered with faded brown heath and black charred spaces between the white sand hills the women carried hymn-books and walked into the church oh pray pray for those who are wandering to find graves beyond the foaming billows fifteenth evening i know a polchinella the moon told me the public applaud vociferously directly they see him every one of his movements is comic and is sure to throw the house into convulsions of laughter and yet there is no art in it at all it is completely nature when he was yet a little boy playing about with other boys he was already punch nature had intended him for it and had provided him with a hump on his back and another on his breast but his inward man his mind on the contrary was richly furnished no one could surpass him in depth of feeling or in readiness of intellect the theatre was his ideal world if he had possessed a slender well-shaped figure he might have been the first tragedian on any stage the heroic the great filled his soul and yet he had become a pulcinella his very sorrow and melancholy did but increase the comic dryness of his sharply cut features and increased the laughter of the audience who showered plaudits on their favourite the lovely columbine was indeed kind and cordial to him but she preferred to marry the harlequin it would have been too ridiculous if beauty and ugliness had in reality paired together when Pulcinella was in very bad spirits, she was the one who could force a hearty burst of laughter, or even a smile from him. First she would be melancholy with him, then quieter, and at last quite cheerful and happy. I know very well what is the matter with you, she said. Yes, you are in love. And he could not help laughing. I, and love, he cried, that would have an absurd look. How the public would shout! certainly you are in love she continued and added with a comic pathos and i am the person you are in love with you see such a thing may be said when it is quite out of the question and indeed pulcinella burst out laughing and gave a leap into the air and his melancholy was forgotten and yet she had only spoken the truth he did love her love her adoringly as he loved what was great and lofty in art at her wedding he was the merriest among the guests but in the stillness of night he wept if the public had seen his distorted face then they would have applauded rapturously 
and a few days ago columbine died on the day of the funeral harlequin was not required to show himself on the boards for he was a disconsolate widower the director had to give a very merry piece that the public might not too painfully miss the pretty columbine and the agile harlequin therefore pulcinella had to be more boisterous and extravagant than ever and he danced and capered with despair in his heart and the audience yelled and shouted bravo bravissimo pulcinella was actually called before the curtain he was pronounced inimitable but last night the hideous little fellow went out of the town quite alone to the deserted churchyard the wreath of flowers on columbine's grave was already faded and he sat down there it was a study for a painter as he sat with his chin on his hands his eyes turned up towards me he looked like a grotesque monument a punch on a grave peculiar and whimsical if the people could have seen their favorite they would have cried as usual bravo pulcinella bravo bravissimo sixteenth evening hear what the moon told me i have seen the cadet who has just been made an officer put on his handsome uniform for the first time i have seen the young bride in her wedding dress and the princess girl wife happy in her gorgeous robes but never have i seen a felicity equal to that of a little girl of four years old whom i watched this evening she had received a new blue dress and a new pink hat the splendid attire had just been put on and all were calling for a candle for my rays shining in through the window of the room were not bright enough for the occasion and further illumination was required there stood the little maid stiff and upright as a doll her arms stretched painfully straight out away from the dress and her fingers apart and oh what happiness beamed from her eyes and from her whole countenance to-morrow you shall go out in your new clothes said her mother and the little one looked up at her hat and down at her frock and smiled brightly mother she cried what will the little dogs think when they see me in these splendid new things seventeenth evening i have spoken to you of pompeii said the moon that corpse of a city exposed in the view of living towns i know another sight still more strange and this is not the corpse but the spectre of a city whenever the jetty fountains splash into the marble basins they seem to me to be telling the story of the floating city yes the spouting water may tell of her the waves of the sea may sing of her fame on the surface of the ocean a mist often rests and that is her widow's veil the bridegroom of the sea is dead his palace and his city are his mausoleum dost thou know this city she has never heard the rolling of wheels or the hoof-treads of horses in her streets through which the fish swim while the black gondola glides spectrally over the green water i will show you the place continued the moon the largest square in it and you will fancy yourself transported into the city of a fairy tale the grass grows rank among the broad flagstones and in the morning twilight thousands of tame pigeons flutter around the solitary lofty tower 
on three sides you find yourself surrounded by cloistered walks in these the silent turk sits smoking his long pipe the handsome greek leans against the pillar and gazes at the upraised trophies and lofty masts memorials of power that is gone the flags hang down like mourning scarves a girl rests there she has put down her heavy pails filled with water the yoke with which she has carried them rests on one of her shoulders and she leans against the masts of victory that is not a fairy palace you see before you yonder but a church the gilded domes and shining orbs flash back my beams the glorious bronze horses up yonder have made journeys like the bronze horse in the fairy tale they have come hither and gone hence and have returned again do you notice the variegated splendour of the walls and windows it looks as if genius has followed the caprices of a child in the adornment of these singular temples do you see the winged lion on the pillar the gold glitters still but his wings are tied the lion is dead for the king of the sea is dead the great hall stands desolate and where gorgeous paintings hung of yore the naked wall now peers through the lazzarone sleeps under the arcade whose pavement in olden times was to be trodden on only by the feet of high nobility from the deep wells and perhaps from the prisons by the bridge of sighs rise the accents of woe as at the time when the tambourine was heard in the gay gondolas and the golden ring was cast from bucentaur to adria the queen of the seas adria shroud thyselves in mist let the veil of thy widowhood shroud thy form and clothe in the weeds of woe the mausoleum of thy bridegroom the marble spectral venice eighteenth evening i looked down upon a great theatre said the moon the house was crowded for a new actor was to make his first appearance that night my rays glided over a little window in the wall and i saw a painted face with the forehead pressed against the panes it was the hero of the evening the knightly beard curled crisply about the chin but there were tears in the man's eyes for he had been hissed off and indeed with reason the poor incapable but incapables cannot be admitted into the empire of art he had deep feelings and loved his art enthusiastically but the art loved him not the prompter's bell sounded the hero enters with a determined air so ran the stage directions in his part and he had to appear before an audience who turned him into ridicule when the piece was over i saw a form wrapped in a mantle creeping down the steps it was the vanquished knight of the evening the scene shifters whispered to one another and i followed the poor fellow home to his room to hang oneself is to die a mean death and poison is not always at hand i know but he thought of both i saw how he looked at his pale face in the glass with eyes half closed to see if he could look well as a corpse a man may be very unhappy and yet exceedingly affected he thought of death of suicide i believe he pitied himself for he wept bitterly and when a man has had his cry out he doesn't kill himself since that time a year had rolled by again a play was to be acted but in a little theatre 
and by a poor strolling company again i saw the well-remembered face with the painted cheeks and the crisp beard he looked up at me and smiled and yet he had been hissed off only a minute before hissed off from a wretched theatre by a miserable audience and to-night a shabby hearse rolled out of the town gate it was a suicide our painted despised hero the driver of the hearse was the only person present for no one followed except my beams in a corner of the churchyard the corpse of the suicide was shovelled into the earth and nettles will soon be growing rank over his grave and the sexton will throw thorns and weeds from the other graves upon it nineteenth evening i come from rome said the moon in the midst of the city upon one of the seven hills lie the ruins of the imperial palace the wild fig tree grows in the clefts of the wall and covers the nakedness thereof with its broad grey-green leaves trampling among the heaps of rubbish the ass treads upon green laurels and rejoices over the rank thistles from this spot whence the eagles of rome once flew abroad whence they came saw and conquered our door leads into a little mean house built of clay between two pillars the wild vine hangs like a mourning garland over the crooked window an old woman and a little granddaughter live there they rule now in the palace of the caesars and show two strangers the remains of its past glories of the splendid throne hall only a naked wall yet stands and a black cypress throws its dark shadow on the spot where the throne once stood the dust lies several feet deep on the broken pavement and the little maiden now the daughter of the imperial palace often sits there on her stool when the evening bells ring the keyhole of the door close by she calls her turret window through this she can see half rome as far as the mighty cupola of st peter's on this evening as usual stillness reigned around and in the full beams of my light came the little granddaughter on her head she carried an earthen picture of antique shape filled with water her feet were bare her short frock and her white sleeves were torn i kissed her pretty round shoulders her dark eyes and black shining hair she mounted the stairs they were steep having been made up of rough blocks of broken marble and the capital of a fallen pillar the coloured lizard slipped away startled from before her feet but she was not frightened at them already she lifted her hand to pull the door-bell a hare's foot fastened to a string formed the bell-handle of the imperial palace she paused for a moment of what might she be thinking perhaps of the beautiful christ-child dressed in gold and silver which was down below in the chapel where the silver candlesticks gleamed so bright and where her little friends sung the hymns in which she also could join i know not presently she moved again she stumbled the earthen vessel fell from her head and broke on the marble steps she burst into tears the beautiful daughter of the imperial palace wept over the worthless broken picture with her bare feet she stood there weeping and dared not pull the string the bell-rope of the imperial palace end of what the moon saw part two
Section twenty two of Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Noel Badrian. Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume One, eighteen thirty five to eighteen forty two by hans christian andersen translated by h p paul what the moon saw part three twentieth evening it was more than a fortnight since the moon had shone now he stood once more round and bright above the clouds moving slowly onward hear what the moon told me from a town in fezzan i followed a caravan on the margin of the sandy desert, in a salt plain that shone like a frozen lake, and was only covered in spots with light drifting sand, a halt was made. The eldest of the community, the water gourd hung at his girdle, and on his head was a little bag of unleavened bread, drew a square in the sand with his staff, and wrote in it a few words out of the Koran, and then the whole caravan passed over the consecrated spot. A young merchant, a child of the East, as I could tell by his eyes and his figure, rode pensively forward on his white snorting steed. He was thinking, perchance, of his fair young wife. It was only two days ago that the camel, adorned with furs and with costly shawls, had carried her, the beauteous bride, round the walls of the city, while drums and cymbals had sounded. The women sang and festive shots of which the bridegroom fired the greater number resounded round the camel and now he was journeying with the caravan across the desert for many nights i followed the train i saw them rest by the well-side among the stunted palms they thrust the knife into the breast of the camel that had fallen and roasted its flesh by the fire my beams cooled the glowing sands and showed them the black rocks dead islands in the immense ocean of sand no hostile tribes met them in their pathless route. No storms arose, no columns of sand whirled destruction over the journeying caravan. At home the beautiful wife prayed for her husband and her father. Are they dead? she asked of my golden crescent. Are they dead? she cried to my full disc. Now the desert lies behind them. This evening they sit beneath the lofty palm trees where the crane flutters around them with its long wings and the pelican watches them from the branches of the mimosa. The luxuriant herbage is trampled down, crushed by the feet of elephants. A troop of negroes are returning from a market in the interior of the land. The women, with copper buttons in their black hair, and decked out in clothes dyed with indigo, drive the heavy-laden oxen, on whose backs slumber the naked black children. A negro leads a young lion, which he has brought by a string. They approach the caravan. The young merchant sits pensively and motionless, thinking of his beautiful wife, dreaming in the land of the blacks of his white lily beyond the desert. He raises his head and, but at this moment a cloud passed before the moon, and then another. I heard nothing more from him this evening. Twenty-first evening. I saw a little girl weeping, said the moon. She was weeping over the depravity of the world. She had received the most beautiful doll as a present. Oh, 
that was a glorious doll so fair and delicate she did not seem created for the sorrows of this world but the brothers of the little girl those great naughty boys had set the doll high up in the branches of a tree and had run away the little girl could not reach up to the doll and could not help her down and that is why she was crying the doll must certainly have been crying too for she stretched out her arms among the green branches and looked quite mournful yes these are the troubles of life to which the little girl had often heard tell alas poor doll it began to grow dark already and suppose night were to come on completely was she left to be sitting on the bough all night long no the little maid could not make up her mind to that i'll stay with you she said although she felt anything but happy in her mind she could almost fancy she distinctly saw little gnomes with their high-crowned hats sitting in the bushes and further back in the long walk tall spectres appeared to be dancing they came nearer and nearer and stretched out their hands towards the tree on which the dolls sat they laughed scornfully and pointed at her with their fingers oh how frightened the little maid was but if one has not done anything wrong she thought nothing evil can harm one i wonder if i have done anything wrong and she considered oh yes i laughed at the poor duck with the red rag on her leg she limped along so funnily i could not help laughing but it's a sin to laugh at animals and she looked up at the doll did you laugh at the duck too she asked and it seemed as if the doll shook her head twenty-second evening i looked down upon tyrol said the moon and my beams caused the dark pines to throw long shadows upon the rocks i looked at the pictures of saint christopher carrying the infant jesus that are painted there upon the walls of the houses colossal figures reaching from the ground to the roof st florian was represented pouring water on the burning house and the lord hung bleeding on the great cross by the wayside to the present generation these are old pictures but i saw when they were put up and marked how one followed the other on the brow of the mountain yonder is perched like a swallow's nest a lonely convent of nuns two of the sisters stood up in the tower tolling the bell they were both young and therefore their glances flew over the mountains out into the world a travelling coach passed by below the postillion wound his horn and the poor nuns looked after the carriage for a moment with a mournful glance and a tear gleamed in the eyes of the younger one and the horn sounded faint and more faintly and the convent bell drowned its expiring echoes twenty-third evening hear what the moon told me some years ago here in copenhagen i looked through the window of a mean little room the father and mother slept but the little son was not asleep i saw the flowered cotton curtains of the bed move and the child peep forth at first i thought he was looking at the great clock which was gaily painted in red and green at the top sat a cuckoo below hung the heavy leaden weights and the pendulum with the polished disc of metal went to and fro and said tick tick but no he was not looking at the clock but at his mother's spinning-wheel that stood just underneath it 
That was the boy's favourite piece of furniture, but he dared not touch it, for if he meddled with it he got a rap on the knuckles. For hours together, when his mother was spinning, he would sit quietly by her side, watching the murmuring spindle and the revolving wheel, and as he sat he thought of many things. Oh, if he might only turn the wheel himself! Father and mother were asleep. He looked at them, and looked at the spinning wheel, and presently a little naked foot peeped out of the bed, and then a second foot, and then two little white legs. There he stood. He looked around once more to see if his father and mother were still asleep. Yes, they slept, and now he crept softly, softly in his short little nightgown to the spinning wheel, and began to spin. The thread flew from the wheel, and the wheel whirled faster and faster. I kissed his fair hair and his blue eyes. It was such a pretty picture. At that moment the mother awoke. The curtain shook. She looked forth and fancied she saw a gnome or some other kind of little spectre. In heaven's name, she cried, and aroused her husband in a frightened way. He opened his eyes, rubbed them with his hands, and looked at the brisk little lad. Why, that is Bertil, said he, and my eye quitted the poor room, for I have so much to see. At the same moment I looked at the halls of the Vatican, where the marble gods are enthroned. I shone upon the group of the Laocoon. The stones seemed to sigh. I pressed a silent kiss on the lips of the muses, and they seemed to stir and move. But my rays lingered longest about the Nile group, with the colossal god. Leaning against the sphinx, he lies there thoughtful and meditative, as if he were thinking on the rolling centuries, and little love-gods sport with him and with the crocodiles. In the Horn of Plenty sat, with folded arms, a little tiny love-god, contemplating the great solemn river-god, a true picture of the boy at the spinning-wheel. The features were exactly the same. Charming and lifelike stood the little marble form, and yet the wheel of the year has turned more than a thousand times since the time when it sprang forth from the stone. Just as often as the boy in the little room turned the spinning wheel, had the great wheel murmured, before the age could again call forth marble gods equal to those he afterwards formed. Years have passed since all this happened, the moon went on to say, Yesterday I looked upon a bay on the eastern coast of Denmark. Glorious woods are there, and high trees, an old knightly castle with red walls, swans floating in the ponds, and in the background appears, among orchids, a little town with a church. Many boats, the crews all furnished with torches, glided over the silent expanse. But these fires had not been kindled for catching fish for everything had a festive look. Music sounded, a song was sung, and in one of the boats the man stood erect to whom homage was paid by the rest. A tall, sturdy man, wrapped in a cloak. He had blue eyes and long white hair. I knew him and thought of the Vatican and of the group of the Nile and the old marble gods. I thought of the simple little room where little Bertil sat in his nightshirt by the spinning wheel. The wheel of time has turned, and new gods have come forth from the stone. From the boats there rose a shout. Hurrah! 
Hurrah for Bertel Thorwaldsen. 24th evening. I will now give you a picture of Frankfurt, said the moon. I especially noticed one building there. It was not the house in which Goethe was born, nor the old council house, through whose grated windows peered the horns of the oxen that were roasted and given to the people when the emperors were crowned. No, it was a private house, plain in appearance and painted green. It stood near the old Jews' street. It was Rothschild's house. I looked through the open door. The staircase was brilliantly lighted. Servants carrying wax candles in massive silver candlesticks stood there and bowed low before an old woman who was being brought downstairs in a litter. The proprietor of the house stood bareheaded and respectfully imprinted a kiss on the hand of the old woman. She was his mother. She nodded in a friendly manner to him and to the servants, and they carried her into the dark narrow street, into a little house that was her dwelling. Here her children had been born. From hence the fortune of the family had arisen. If she deserted the despised street and the little house, fortune would also desert her children. That was her firm belief. The moon told me no more. His visit this evening was far too short. But I thought of the old woman in the narrow, despised street. It would have cost her but a word, and a brilliant house would have arisen for her on the banks of the Thames. A word and a villa would have been prepared in the Bay of Naples. If I deserted the lowly house, where the fortunes of my sons first began to bloom, fortune would desert them. It was a superstition, but a superstition of such a class that he who knows the story and has seen this picture need have only two words placed under the picture to make him understand it. And these two words are a mother. Twenty-fifth evening. It was yesterday in the morning twilight. These are the words the moon told me. In the great city no chimney was yet smoking, and it was just at the chimneys that I was looking. Suddenly a little head emerged from one of them, and then half a body, the arms resting on the rim of the chimney-pot. Yahip, yahip, cried a voice. It was the little chimney-sweeper, who had for the first time in his life crept through a chimney and stuck out his head at the top. Yahip, yahip. Yes, certainly that was a very different thing to creeping about in the dark, narrow chimneys. The air blew so fresh, and he could look over the whole city toward the green wood. The sun was just rising. It shone round and great, just in his face, that beamed with triumph, though it was very prettily blacked with soot. The whole town can see me now, he exclaimed, and the moon can see me now, and the sun too. Yahip, yahip, and he flourished his broom in triumph. Twenty-sixth evening. Last night I looked down upon a town in China, said the moon. My beams irradiated the naked walls that form the streets there. Now and then, certainly, a door is seen, but it is locked. For what does the Chinaman care about the outer world? Close wooden shutters covered the windows behind the walls of the houses, but through the windows of the temple a faint light glimmered. I looked in and saw the quaint decorations within. From the floor to the ceiling pictures are painted in the most glaring colours, 
and richly gilt pictures representing the deeds of the gods here on earth in each niche statues are placed but they are almost entirely hidden by the coloured drapery and the banners that hang down before each idol and they are all made of tin stood a little altar of holy water with flowers and burning wax lights on it above all the rest stood foe the chief deity clad in a garment of yellow silk for yellow is here the sacred colour at the foot of the altar sat a living being a young priest he appeared to be praying but in the midst of his prayer he seemed to fall into deep thought and this must have been wrong for his cheeks glowed and he held down his head poor sui hong was he perhaps dreaming of working in the little flower garden behind the high street wall and did that occupation seem more agreeable to him than watching the wax lights in the temple or did he wish to sit at the rich feast wiping his mouth with silver paper between each course or was his sin so great that if he dared utter it the celestial empire would punish it with death had his thoughts ventured to fly with the ships of the barbarians to their homes in far distant england no his thoughts did not fly so far and yet they were sinful sinful as thoughts born of young hearts sinful here in the temple in the presence of foe and the other holy gods i know whither his thoughts had strayed at the farther end of the city on the flat roof paved with porcelain on which stood the handsome vases covered with painted flowers sat the beauteous pool of the roguish eyes of full lips and of the tiny feet the tight shoe pained her but her heart pained her still more she lifted her graceful round arm and her satin dress rustled before her stood a glass bowl containing four goldfish she stirred the bowl carefully with a slender lacquered stick very slowly for she too was lost in thought was she thinking perchance how the fishes were richly clothed in gold how they lived calmly and peacefully in their crystal world how they were regularly fed and yet how much happier they might be if they were free yes that she could well understand the beautiful Pooh her thoughts wandered away from her home wandered to the temple but not for the sake of holy things poor Pooh, poor sui hong their earthly thoughts met but my cold beam lay between the two like the sword of the cherub twenty-seventh evening the air was calm said the moon the water was transparent as the purest ether through which i was gliding and deep below the surface i could see the strange plants that stretched up their long arms towards me like the gigantic trees of the forest the fishes swam to and fro above their tops high in the air a flight of wild swans were winging their way one of which sank lower and lower with wearied pinions his eyes following the airy caravan that melted further and further into the distance with outspread wings he sank slowly as a soap bubble sinks in the still air till he touched the water at length his head lay back between his wings and silently he lay there like a white lotus flower upon a quiet lake and a gentle wind arose and crisped the quiet surface which gleamed like the clouds that poured along in great broad waves and the swan raised his head 
and the glowing water splashed like blue fire over his breast and back. The morning dawn illuminated the red clouds. The swan rose strengthened and flew toward the rising sun, toward the bluish coast whither the caravan had gone. But he flew alone, with a longing in his breast. Lonely he flew over the blue, swelling billows. Twenty-eighth evening. I will give you another picture of Sweden, said the moon. Among dark pine woods near the melancholy banks of the Stockson lies the old convent church of Retta. My rays glided through the grating into the roomy vaults, where kings sleep tranquilly in great stone coffins. On the wall above the grave of each is placed the emblem of earthly grandeur, a kingly crown, but it is made only of wood, painted and gilt, and is hung on a wooden peg driven into the wall. The worms have gnawed the gilded wood, the spider has spun her web from the crown down to the sand, like a mourning banner, frail and transient as the grief of mortals. How quietly they sleep! I can remember them quite plainly. I still see the bold smile on their lips, that so strongly and plainly expressed joy or grief. When the steamboat winds along like a magic snail over the lakes, a stranger often comes to the church and visits the burial vault. He asks the names of the kings, and they have a dead and forgotten sound. He glances with a smile at the worm-eaten crowns, and if he happens to be a pious, thoughtful man, something of melancholy mingles with the smile. Slumber on, ye dead ones. The moon thinks of you. The moon at night sends down his rays into your silent kingdom, over which hangs the crown of pine-wood. Twenty-ninth evening. Close by the high road, said the moon, is an inn, and opposite to it is a great wagon-shed, whose straw roof was just being rethatched. I looked down between the bare rafters and through the open loft into the comfortless space below. The turkey-cock slept on the beam, and the saddle rested in the empty crib. In the middle of the shed stood a travelling carriage. The proprietor was inside, fast asleep, while the horses were being watered. The coachman stretched himself, though I am very sure that he had been most comfortably asleep half the last stage. The door of the servant's room stood open, and the bed looked as if it had been turned over and over. The candle stood on the floor, and had burned deep down into the socket. The wind blew cold through the shed. It was nearer to the dawn than to midnight. In the wooden frame on the ground slept a wandering family of musicians. The father and mother seemed to be dreaming of the burning liquor that remained in the bottle. The little pale daughter was dreaming too, for her eyes were wet with tears. The harp stood at their heads, and the dog lay stretched at their feet. Thirtieth evening. It was in a little provincial town, the moon said. It certainly happened last year, but that has nothing to do with the matter. I saw it quite plainly. Today I read about it in the papers, but there it was not half so clearly expressed. In the tap-room of the little inn sat the bear leader, eating his supper. The bear was tied up outside, behind the wood-pile. Poor Bruin, who did nobody any harm, though he looked grim enough. 
Up in the garret, three little children were playing by the light of my beams. The eldest was perhaps six years old, the youngest certainly no more than two. Tramp, tramp, somebody was coming upstairs. Who might it be? The door was thrust open. It was Bruin, the great shaggy Bruin. He had got tired of waiting down in the courtyard, and had found his way to the stairs. I saw it all, said the moon. The children were very much frightened at first at the great shaggy animal. Each of them crept into a corner, but he found them all out and smelt at them, but did them no harm. This must be a great dog, they said, and began to stroke him. He lay down upon the ground, the youngest boy clambered on his back, and bending down a little head of golden curls played at hiding in the beast's shaggy skin. Presently the eldest boy took his drum and beat upon it, till it rattled again. The bear rose upon his hind legs and began to dance. It was a charming sight to behold. Each boy now took his gun, and the bear was obliged to have one too, and he held it up quite properly. Here was a capital playmate they had found, and they began marching. One, two, one, two. Suddenly someone came to the door, which opened, and the mother of the children appeared. You should have seen her in her dumb terror, with her face as white as chalk, her mouth half open, and her eyes fixed in a horrified stare. But the youngest boy nodded to her in great glee, and called out in his infantile prattle, We're playing at soldiers. And then the bear leader came running up. 31st Evening The wind blew stormy and cold, the clouds flew hurriedly past, only for a moment, now and then, did the moon become visible. He said, I looked down from the silent sky upon the driving clouds, and saw the great shadows chasing each other across the earth. I looked upon a prison. The closed carriage stood before it. A prisoner was to be carried away. My rays pierced through the grated window toward the wall. The prisoner was scratching a few lines upon it, as a parting token, but he did not write words, but a melody, the outpouring of his heart. The door was opened, and he was led forth, and fixed his eyes upon my round disc. Clouds passed between us, as if he were not to see his face, nor I his. He stepped into the carriage, the door was closed, the whip cracked, and the horses galloped off into the thick forest, whither my rays were not able to follow him. But as I glanced through the grated window, my rays glided over the notes, his last farewell engraved on the prison wall. Where words fail, sounds can often speak. My rays could only light up isolated notes, so the greater part of what was written there will ever remain dark to me. Was it the death hymn he wrote there? Were these the glad notes of joy? Did he drive away to meet death, or hasten to the embrace of his beloved? The rays of the moon do not read all that is written by mortals. Thirty-second evening. I love the children, said the moon, especially the quite little ones. They are so droll. Sometimes I peep into the room, between the curtains and the window frame, when they are not thinking of me. It gives me pleasure to see them dressing and undressing, 
first the little round naked shoulder comes creeping out of the frock then the arm or i see how the stocking is drawn off and a plump little white leg makes its appearance and a white foot that is fit to be kissed and i kiss it too but about what i was going to tell you this evening i looked through a window before which no curtain was drawn for nobody lives opposite i saw a whole troop of little ones all of one family and among them was a little sister she is only four years old but can say her prayers as well as any of the rest the mother sits by her bed every evening and hears her say her prayers and then she has a kiss and the mother sits by the bed till the little one has gone to sleep which generally happens as soon as ever she can close her eyes this evening the two elder children were a little boisterous one of them hopped about on one leg in his long white nightgown and the other stood on a chair surrounded by the clothes of all the children and declared he was acting grecian statues the third and fourth laid the clean linen carefully in the box for that is a thing that has to be done and the mother sat by the bed of the youngest and announced to all the family that they were to be quiet for little sister was going to say her prayers i looked in over the lamp and into the little maiden's bed where she lay under the neat white coverlet her hands folded demurely and her little face quite grave and serious she was praying the lord's prayer aloud but her mother interrupted her in the middle of her prayer how is it she asked that when you have prayed for daily bread you always add something i cannot understand you must tell me what it is the little one lay silent and looked at her mother in embarrassment what is it you say after our daily bread dear mother don't be angry i only said and plenty of butter on it end of what the moon saw part three Section 23 of Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eve Lynn. Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 1, 1835 to 1842, by Hans Christian Andersen. Translated by H. P. Paul, The Wicked Prince. There lived once upon a time a wicked prince whose heart and mind were set upon conquering all the countries of the world and on frightening the people. He devastated their countries with fire and sword, and his soldiers trod down the crops in the fields and destroyed the peasants' huts by fire, so that the flames licked the green leaves off the branches, and the fruit hung dried up on the singed black trees. Many a poor mother fled, her naked baby in her arms, behind the still-smoking walls of her cottage but also there the soldiers followed her, and when they found her, she served as new nourishment to their diabolical enjoyments. Demons could not possibly have done worse things than these soldiers. The prince was of opinion that all this was right, and that it was only the natural course which things ought to take. His power increased day by day, his name was feared by all, and fortune favored his deeds. He brought enormous wealth home from the conquered towns, and gradually accumulated in his residence riches which could nowhere be equalled. 
he erected magnificent palaces, churches, and halls, and all who saw these splendid buildings and great treasures exclaimed admiringly, What a mighty prince! But they did not know what endless misery he had brought upon other countries, nor did they hear the sighs and lamentations which rose up from the debris of the destroyed cities. The prince often looked with delight upon his gold and his magnificent edifices, and thought, like the crowd, What a mighty prince! But I must have more, much more. No power on earth must equal mine, far less exceed it. He made war with all his neighbors and defeated them. The conquered kings were chained up with golden fetters to his chariot when he drove through the streets of his city. These kings had to kneel at his and his courtiers' feet when they sat at table, and live on the morsels which they left. At last the prince had his own statue erected on the public places and fixed on the royal palaces. Nay, he even wished it to be placed in the churches, on the altars. But in this the priests opposed him, saying, Prince, you are mighty indeed, but God's power is much greater than yours. We dare not obey your orders. Well, said the prince, then I will conquer God too. And in his haughtiness and foolish presumption, he ordered a magnificent ship to be constructed, with which he could sail through the air. It was gorgeously fitted out and of many colors. Like the tail of a peacock, it was covered with thousands of eyes, but each eye was the barrel of a gun. The prince sat in the center of the ship, and had only to touch a spring in order to make thousands of bullets fly out in all directions while the guns were at once loaded again. Hundreds of eagles were attached to this ship, and it rose with the swiftness of an arrow up towards the sun. The earth was soon left far below, and looked, with its mountains and woods, like a cornfield where the plough had made furrows which separated green meadows. Soon it looked only like a map with indistinct lines upon it, and at last it entirely disappeared in mist and clouds. Higher and higher rose the eagles up into the air. Then God sent one of his numberless angels against the ship. The wicked prince showered thousands of bullets upon him, but they rebounded from his shining wings and fell down like ordinary hailstones. One drop of blood, one single drop, came out of the white feathers of the angel's wings and fell upon the ship in which the prince sat, burnt into it, and weighed upon it like thousands of hundredweights, dragging it rapidly down to the earth again. The strong wings of the eagles gave way, the wind roared round the prince's head, and the clouds around, were they formed by the smoke rising up from the burnt cities, took strange shapes, like crabs many, many miles long, which stretched their claws out after him, and rose up like enormous rocks, from which rolling masses dashed down, and became fire-spitting dragons. The prince was lying half-dead in his ship when it sank at last with a terrible shock into the branches of a large tree in the wood. I will conquer God, said the prince. I have sworn it. My will must be done. And he spent seven years in the construction of wonderful ships to sail through the air, and had darts cast from the hardest steel to break the walls of heaven with. He gathered warriors from all countries, so many that when they were placed side by side, they covered the space of several miles. They entered the ships, and the prince was approaching his own, when God sent a swarm of gnats, one swarm of little gnats. They buzzed round the prince and stung his face and hands. Angrily, he drew his sword and brandished it, but he only touched the air and did not hit the gnats. Then he ordered his servants to bring costly coverings and wrap him in them, that the gnats might no longer be able to reach him. The servants carried out his orders, but one single gnat had placed itself inside one of the coverings, crept into the prince's ear, and stung him. The place burnt like fire, and the poison entered into his blood. 
Mad with pain, he tore off the coverings and his clothes, too, flinging them far away, and danced about before the eyes of his ferocious soldiers, who now mocked at him, the mad prince, who wished to make war with God, and was overcome by a single little gnat. End of the Wicked Prince Section 24 of Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Curtis Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 1, 1835-1842 by Hans Christian Andersen Translated by H. P. Poor The Metal Pig In the city of Florence, not far from the Piazza del Gandusa, runs a little street called Porta Rosa. In this street, just in front of the market-place where vegetables are sold, stands a pig made of brass and curiously formed. The bright colour has been changed by age to dark green, but clear fresh water pours from the snout, which shines as if it had been polished, and so indeed it has, for hundreds of poor people and children seize it in their hands as they place their mouths close to the mouth of the animal to drink. It is quite a picture to see a half-naked boy clasping the well-formed creature by the head as he presses his rosy lips against his jaws. Every one who visits Florence can very quickly find the place. He has only to ask the first beggar he meets for the metal pig, and he will be told where it is. It was late on a winter evening. The mountains were covered with snow, but the moon shone brightly, and moonlight in Italy is like a dull winter's day in the north. Indeed it is better, for clear air seems to raise us above the earth, while in the north a cold, grey, leaden sky appears to press us down to earth, even as the cold, damp earth shall one day press on us in the grave. In the garden of the Grand Duke's palace, under the roof of one of the wings, where a thousand roses bloom in water, a little ragged boy had been sitting the whole day long, a boy who might serve as a type of Italy, lovely and smiling, and yet still suffering. He was hungry and thirsty, yet no one gave him anything. And when it became dark, and they were about to close the gardens, the porter turned him out. He stood a long time, musing on the bridge which crosses the Arno, and looking at the glittering stars reflected in the water which flowed between him and the elegant marble bridge della Trinita. He then walked away towards the metal pig, half knelt down, clasped it with his arms, and then put his mouth to the shining snout and drank deep draughts of the fresh water. Close by lay a few salad leaves and two chestnuts, which were to serve for his supper. No one was in the street but himself. It belonged only to him, so he boldly seated himself on the pig's back, leaned forward so that his curly head could rest on the head of the animal, and before he was aware, he fell asleep. It was midnight. The metal pig raised himself gently, 
and the boy heard him say quite distinctly, Hold tight, little boy, for I am going to run. And away he started for a most wonderful ride. First they arrived at the Piazza del Gandusa, and the metal horse which bears the duke's statues neighed aloud. The painted coat of arms on the old council house shone like transparent pictures, and Michelangelo's David tossed his sling. It was as if everything had life. The metallic groups of figures, among which were Perseus and the Rape of the Sabines, looked like living persons, and cries of terror sounded from them all across the noble square. By the Palazzo degli Alfuzzi, in the arcade where the nobility assembled for the carnival, the metal pig stopped. Hold fast, said the animal. Hold fast, for I am going upstairs. The little boy said not a word. He was half pleased and half afraid. They entered a long gallery, where the boy had been before. The walls were resplendent with paintings. Here stood statues and busts, all in a clear light as if it were day. But the grandest appeared when the door of a side room opened. The little boy could remember what beautiful things he had seen there, but tonight everything shone in its brightest colours. Here stood the figure of a beautiful woman, as beautifully sculptured as possible by one of the great masters. Her graceful limbs appeared to move, dolphins sprang at her feet, and immortality shone from her eyes. The world called her the Venus de Medici. By her side were statues in which the spirit of life breathed in stone, figures of men, one of whom wetted his sword and was named the Grinder. Wrestling gladiators formed another group. The sword had been sharpened for them, and they strove for the goddess of beauty. The boy was dazzled by so much glitter, for the walls were gleaming with bright colours, all appeared living reality. As they passed from hall to hall, beauty everywhere shone itself, and as the metal pig went step by step from one picture to the other, the little boy could see it all plainly. One glory eclipsed another, yet there was one picture that fixed itself on the little boy's memory, more especially because of the happy children it represented, for these the little boy had seen in daylight. Many passed this picture by with indifference, and yet it contains a treasure of poetic feeling. It represents Christ descending into Hades. They are not the lost whom the spectator sees, but the heathen of olden times. The Florentine Agnolo Bronzino painted this picture. Most beautiful is the expression on the face of the two children, who appear to have full confidence that they shall reach heaven at last. They are embracing each other, and one little one stretches out his hand towards another, who stands below him, and points to himself as if he were saying, I am going to heaven. The older people stand as if uncertain, yet hopeful, and they bow in humble adoration to the Lord Jesus. On this picture the boy's eyes rested longer than on any other. The metal pig stood still before it. A low sigh was heard. Did it come from the picture or from the animal? The boy raised his hands towards the smiling children, and then the pig ran off with him through the open vestibule. Thank you, thank you, you beautiful animal, said the little boy, caressing the metal pig as it ran down the steps. Thanks to yourself also replied the metal pig. 
I have helped you, and you have helped me, for it is only when I have an innocent child on my back that I receive the power to run. Yes, as you see, I can even venture under the rays of the lamp, in front of the picture of the Madonna. But I may not enter the church. Still from without, and while you are upon my back, I may look in through the open door. Do not go down yet, for if you do, then I shall be lifeless, as you have seen me in the Porta Rosa. I will stay with you, my dear creature, said the little boy. So then they went on at a rapid pace through the streets of Florence, till they came to the square before the church of Santa Croce. The folding doors flew open, and light streamed from the altar through the church into the deserted square. A wonderful blaze of light streamed from one of the monuments in the left side aisle, and a thousand moving stars seemed to form a glory round it. Even the coat of arms on the tombstone shone, and a red ladder on a blue field gleamed like fire. It was the grave of Galileo. The monument is unadorned, but the red ladder is an emblem of art, signifying that the way to glory leads up a shining ladder on which the prophets of mind rise to heaven, like Elias of old. In the right aisle of the church, every statue on the richly carved sarcophagi seemed endowed with life. Here stood Michelangelo, there Dante, with the laurel wreath round his brow, Alfieri and Machiavelli, for here, side by side, rest the great men, the pride of Italy. Opposite to the grave of Galileo is the tomb of Michelangelo. His bust stands upon it, with three figures representing sculpture, painting, and architecture. Close by is a monument to Dante, whose body is buried in a Ravenna. On this monument, Italy is represented pointing to the colossal statue of Dante, while poetry weeps over his loss. A few steps further is Alfieri's monument, which is adorned with laurel, the lyre, and dramatic masks. Italy weeps over the grave. Machiavelli is the last in the list of these celebrated men. The church itself is very beautiful, even more beautiful than the marble cathedral at Florence, though not so large. It seemed as if the carved vestments stirred, and as if the marble figures they covered raised their heads higher to gaze upon the brightly coloured glowing altar where the white-robed boys swung the golden censers amid music and song, while the strong fragrance of incense filled the church and streamed forth into the square. The boy stretched forth his hands towards the light, and at the same moment the metal pig started again so rapidly that he was obliged to cling tightly to him. The wind whistled in his ears. He heard the church door creak on its hinges as it closed, and it seemed to him as if he had lost his senses. Then a cold shudder passed over him, and he awoke. It was morning. The metal pig stood in its old place on the Porta Rosa, and the boy found he had slipped nearly off its back. Fear and trembling came upon him as he thought of his mother. She had sent him out the day before to get some money. He had not done so and now he was hungry and thirsty. Once more he clasped the neck of his metal horse, kissed its nose, and nodded farewell to it. Then he wandered away into one of the narrowest streets, where there was scarcely room for a loaded donkey to pass. A great iron-bound door stood ajar, 
and he passed through, and climbed up a brick staircase with dirty walls and a rope for a balustrade, till he came to an open gallery hung with rags. From here a flight of steps led down to a court, where from a well water was drawn up by iron rollers to the different stories of the house, and where the water buckets hung side by side. Sometimes the roller and the bucket danced in the air, splashing the water all over the court. Another broken-down staircase led from the gallery, and two Russian sailors running down it almost upset the poor boy. They were coming from their nightly carousal. A woman, not very young, with an unpleasant face and a quantity of black hair, followed them. "'What have you brought home?' she asked when she saw the boy. "'Don't be angry,' he pleaded. "'I received nothing. I have nothing at all.' and he seized his mother's dress and would have kissed it. Then they went into the little room. I need not describe it, but only say that there stood in it an earthen pot with handles made for holding fire, which in Italy is called a marito. This pot she took in her lap, warmed her fingers, and pushed the boy with her elbow. Certainly you must have some money. The boy began to cry, and then she struck him with her foot till he cried out louder. Will you be quiet? or I'll break your screaming head. And she swung about the fire-pot which she held in her hand, while the boy crouched to the earth and screamed. Then a neighbor came in, and she also had a marito under her arm. Felicita, she said, what are you doing to the child? The child is mine, she answered. I can murder him if I like, and you too, Gianna. And then she swung about the fire-pot. The other woman lifted up hers to defend herself, and the two pots clashed together so violently that they were dashed to pieces, and fire and ashes flew about the room. The poor child ran till he was quite out of breath. At last he stopped at the church, the doors of which were opened to him the night before, and went in. Here everything was bright, and the boy knelt down by the first tomb on his right, the grave of Michelangelo, and sobbed as if his heart would break. People came and went. Mass was performed, but no one noticed the boy, excepting an elderly citizen, who stood still and looked at him for a moment, and then went away like the rest. Hunger and thirst overpowered the child, and he became quite faint and ill. At last he crept into a corner behind the marble monuments and went to sleep. Towards evening he was awakened by a pull at his sleeve, he started up, and the same old citizen stood before him. "'Are you ill? Where do you live? Have you been here all day?' were some of the questions asked by the old man. After hearing his answers, the old man took him home to a small house close by, in a back street. They entered a glove-maker's shop where a woman sat sewing busily. A little white poodle, so closely shaven that his pink skin could plainly be seen, frisked about the room and gambled upon the boy. "'Innocent souls are soon intimate,' said the woman as she caressed both the boy and the dog. These good people gave their child food and drink, and said he should stay with them all night, and that the next day the old man, who was called Giuseppe, would go and speak to his mother. A little homely bed was prepared for him, but to him who had so often slept on the hard stones there was a royal couch, and he slept sweetly and dreamed of the splendid pictures and of the metal pig. Giuseppe went out the next morning, and the poor child was not glad to see him go, for he knew that the old man was gone to his mother, 
and that perhaps he would have to go back. He wept at the thought, and then he played with the little lively dog and kissed it, while the old woman looked kindly at him to encourage him. And what news did Giuseppe bring back? At first the boy could not hear, for he talked a great deal to his wife, and she nodded and stroked the boy's cheek. Then she said, He is a good lad. He shall stay with us. He may become a clever glove-maker like you. Look what delicate fingers he has got. The donna intended him for a glove-maker. So the boy stayed with them, and the woman herself taught him to sew, and he ate well and slept well, and became very merry. But at last he began to tease Bellissima, as the little dog was called. This made the woman angry, and she scolded him and threatened him, which made him very unhappy. And he went and sat in his own room full of sad thoughts. The chamber looked upon the street, in which hung skins to dry, and there were thick iron bars across his window. That night he lay awake thinking of the metal pig. Indeed, it was always in his thoughts. Suddenly he fancied he heard feet outside going a pit-a-pat. He sprung out of bed and went to the window. Could it be the metal pig? But there was nothing to be seen. Whatever he had heard had passed already. Next morning their neighbour, the artist, passed by, carrying a paint-box and a large roll of canvas. "'Help the gentleman to carry his box of colours,' said the woman to the boy and he obeyed instantly, took the box, and followed the painter. They walked on till they reached the picture gallery, and mounted the same staircase up which he had ridden that night on the metal pig. He remembered all the statues and pictures, the beautiful marble Venus, and again he looked at the Madonna with the Saviour and St. John. They stopped before the picture by Bronzino, in which Christ is represented as standing in the lower world with the children smiling before him in the sweet expectation of entering heaven, and the poor boy smiled too, for here was his heaven. "'You may go home now,' said the painter, while the boy stood watching him till he had set up his easel. "'May I see you paint?' asked the boy. "'May I see you put the picture on this white canvas?' "'I am not going to paint yet,' replied the artist. Then he brought out a piece of chalk. His hand moved quickly and his eye measured the great picture. And though nothing appeared but a faint line, the figure of the Saviour was as clearly visible as in the coloured picture. "'Why don't you go?' said the painter. Then the boy wandered home silently, and seated himself on the table, and learned to sew gloves. But all day long his thoughts were in the picture gallery, and so he prickled his fingers and was awkward. But he did not tease Bellissima. When evening came and the house door stood open, he slipped out. It was a bright, beautiful, starlight evening, but rather cold. Away he went through the already deserted streets, and soon came to the metal pig. He stooped down and kissed its shining nose, and then seated himself on its back. "'You happy creature,' he said. "'How I have longed for you! We must take a ride to-night!' But the metal pig lay motionless, while the fresh steam gushed forth from its mouth. The little boy still sat astride on its back, when he felt something pulling at its clothes. He looked down, and there was Bellissima, little smooth-shaven Bellissima, barking as if she would have said, "'Here I am, too. Why are you sitting there?' 
A fiery dragon could not have frightened the little boy so much as did the little dog in this place. Bellissima, in the street, and not dressed, as the old lady called it. What would be the end of this? The dog never went out in winter, unless she was attired in a little lambskin coat which had been made for her. It was fastened round the little dog's neck and body with red ribbons, and was decorated with rosettes and little bells. The dog looked almost like a little kid when she was allowed to go out in winter, and trot after her mistress. And now here she was in the cold, and not dressed. Oh, how would it all end? All his fancies were quickly put to flight. Yet he kissed the metal pig once more, and then took Bellissima in his arms. The poor little thing trembled so of cold that the boy ran homeward as fast as he could. "'What are you running away with there?' asked two of the police whom he met, and at whom the dog barked. "'Where have you stolen that pretty dog?' they asked, and they took it away from him. "'Oh, I have not stolen it. Do give it to me back again,' cried the boy despairingly. "'If you have not stolen it, you may stay at home that they can send to the watch-house with the dog.' Then they told him where the watch-house was, and went away with Bellissima. Here was a dreadful trouble. The boy did not know whether he had better jump into the Arno, or go home and confess everything. They would certainly kill him, he thought. "'Well, I will gladly be killed,' he reasoned, "'for then I shall die and go to heaven.' And so he went home, almost hoping for death. The door was locked, and he could not reach the knocker. No one was in the street, so he took up a stone, and with it made a tremendous noise at the door. "'Who is there?' asked someone from within. "'It is I,' said he. "'Bellissima is gone. Open the door, and then kill me.' Then, indeed, there was a great panic. Madame was so very fond of Bellissima. She immediately looked at the wall where the dog's dress usually hung, and there was the little lambskin. "'Bellissima, in the watch-house!' she cried. "'You bad boy! How did you entice her out?' poor little delicate thing with those rough policemen and she'll be frozen with cold giuseppe went off at once while his wife lamented and the boy wept several of the neighbours came in and amongst them the painter he took the boy between his knees and questioned him and in broken sentences he soon heard the whole story and also about the metal pig and the wonderful ride to the picture gallery which was certainly rather incomprehensible the painter however consoled the little fellow, and tried to soften the lady's anger. But she would not be pacified till her husband returned with Bellissima, who had been with the police. Then there was a great rejoicing, and the painter caressed the boy, and gave him a number of pictures. Oh, what beautiful pictures these were! Figures with funny heads, and above all, the metal pig was there too. Oh, nothing could be more delightful! By means of a few strokes it was made to appear on the paper, and even the house that stood behind it had been sketched in. Oh, if he could only draw and paint! He who could do this could conjure all the world before him. The first leisure moment during the next day, the boy got a pencil, and on the back of one of the other drawings he attempted to copy the drawing of the metal pig. And he succeeded. Certainly it was rather crooked, rather up and down one leg thick and another thin. Still, it was like the copy, and he was overjoyed at what he had done. The pencil would not go quite as it ought. He had found that out. For the next day he tried again. A second pig was drawn by the side of the first, and this looked a hundred times better. 
and the third attempt was so good that everybody might know what it was meant to represent. And now the glove-making went on, but slowly. The orders given by the shops in the town were not finished quickly, for the metal pig had taught the boy that all objects may be drawn upon paper, and Florence is a picture-book in itself for anyone who chooses to turn over its pages. On the Piazza del Trinita stands a slender pillar, and upon it is the Goddess of Justice, blindfolded with her scales in her hand. She was soon represented on paper, and it was the glove-maker's boy who placed her there. His collection of pictures increased, but as yet they were only copies of lifeless objects when, one day, Bellissima came gambling before him. "'Stand still!' cried he, "'and I will draw you beautifully to put among my collection.' But Bellissima would not stand still, so she must be bound fast in one position. He tied her head and tail, but she barked and jumped and so pulled and tightened the string that she was nearly strangled, and just then her mistress walked in. "'You wicked boy! The poor little creature!' was all she could utter. She pushed the boy from her, thrust him away with her foot, called him a most ungrateful, good-for-nothing, wicked boy, and forbade him to enter the house again. Then she wept and kissed her little half-strangled Bellissima. At this moment the painter entered the room. In the year 1834 there was an exhibition in the Academy of Arts at Florence. Two pictures placed side by side attracted a large number of the spectators. The smaller of the two represented a little boy sitting at a table, drawing. Before him was a little white poodle, curiously shaven, but as the animal would not stand still, it had been fastened with a string to its head and tail to keep it in one position. The truthfulness and life in this picture interested everyone. The painter was said to be a young Florentine who had been found in the streets when a child by an old glove-maker who had brought him up. The boy had taught himself to draw. It was also said that a young artist, now famous, had discovered talent in the child, just as he was about to be sent away for having tied up Madame's favourite little dog and using it as a model. The glove-maker's boy had also become a great painter, as the picture proved, but the larger picture by its side was still greater proof of his talent. It represented a handsome boy, clothed in rags, lying asleep, and leaning against the metal pig in the street of the Porta Rosa. All the spectators knew the spot well. The child's arms were round the neck of the pig, and he was in a deep sleep. The lamp before the picture of the Madonna threw a strong, effective light on the pale, delicate face of the child. It was a beautiful picture. A large gilt frame surrounded it, and on one corner of the frame a laurel wreath had been hung, but a black band twined unseen amongst the green leaves, and a streamer of crepe hung down from it. For within the last few days, the young artist had died. End of the Metal Pig Recording by James Curtis Section 25 of Hans Christian Andersen's Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 1, 
1835 to 1842, by Hans Christian Andersen, translated by H. P. Paul. The Shepherd's Story of the Bond of Friendship, by Hans Christian Andersen, 1842. The little dwelling in which we lived was of clay, but the doorposts were columns of fluted marble found near the spot on which it stood. The roof sloped nearly to the ground. It was at this time dark brown and ugly, but it had originally been formed of blooming olive and laurel branches brought from beyond the mountains. The house was situated in a narrow gorge whose rocky walls rose to a perpendicular height, naked and black while round their summits clouds often hung, looking like white living figures. Not a singing bird was ever heard there, neither did men dance to the sound of the pipe. The spot was one sacred to olden times, even its name recalled a memory of the days when it was called Delphi. Then the summits of the dark sacred mountains were covered with snow, and the highest Mount Parnassus, glowed longest in the red evening light. The brook which rolled from it near our house was also sacred. How well I can remember every spot in that deep sacred solitude. A fire had been kindled in the midst of the hut, and while the hot ashes lay there red and glowing, the bread was baked in them. At times the snow would be piled so high around our hut as to almost hide it, and then my mother appeared most cheerful. She would hold my head between her hands and sing the songs she never sang at other times, for the Turks, our masters, would not allow it. She sang, On the summit of Mount Olympus, in a forest of dwarf firs, lay an old stag. His eyes were heavy with tears and glittering with colors like dewdrops. And there came by a roebuck, and said, What ailest thee, that thou weepest blue and red tears? And the stag answered, The Turk has come to our city. He has wild dogs for the chase, a goodly pack. I will drive them away across the islands, cried the young roebuck. I will drive them away across the islands into the deep sea. But before evening the roebuck was slain, and before night the hunted stag was dead. And when my mother sang thus, her eyes would become moist, and on the long eyelashes were tears, but she concealed them, and watched the black bread baking in the ashes. And then I would clench my fist and cry, We will kill these Turks. But she repeated the words of the song, I will drive them across the islands to the deep sea. But before evening came the roebuck was slain, and before night the hunted stag was dead. We had been lonely in our hut for several days and nights when my father came home. I knew he would bring me some shells from the Gulf of Lepanto, or perhaps a knife with a shining blade. This time he brought under his sheepskin cloak a little child, a little half-naked girl. She was wrapped in a fur, but when this was taken off and she lay in my mother's lap, three silver coins were found fastened in her dark hair. They were all her possessions. My father told us that the child's parents had been killed by the Turks, and he talked so much about them that I dreamed of Turks all night. He himself had been wounded, and my mother bound up his arm. It was a deep wound, and the thick sheepskin cloak was stiff with congealed blood. 
the little maiden was to be my sister how pretty and bright she looked even my mother's eyes were not more gentle than hers anastasia as she was called was to be my sister because her father had been united to mine by an old custom which we still follow they had sworn brotherhood in their youth and the most beautiful and virtuous maiden in the neighborhood was chosen to perform the act of consecration upon this bond of friendship so now this little girl was my sister she sat in my lap and i brought her flowers and feathers from the birds of the mountain we drank together of the waters of parnassus and dwelt for many years beneath the laurel roof of the hut while winter after winter my mother sang her song of the stag who shed red tears but as yet i did not understand that the sorrows of my own countrymen were mirrored in those tears one day there came to our hut franks men from a far country whose dress was different to ours they had tents and beds with them carried by horses and they were accompanied by more than twenty turks all armed with swords and muskets these franks were friends of the pasha and had letters from him commanding an escort for them they only came to see our mountain to ascend parnassus amid the snow and clouds and to look at the strange black rocks which raised their steep sides near our hut they could not find room in the hut nor endure the smoke that rolled along the ceiling till it found its way out at the low door so they pitched their tents on a small space outside our dwelling roasted lambs and birds were brought forth and strong sweet wine of which the turks are forbidden to partake when they departed i accompanied them for some distance carrying my little sister anastasia wrapped in a goatskin on my back one of the frankish gentlemen made me stand in front of a rock and drew us both as we stood there so that we looked like one creature i did not think of it then but anastasia and i really were one she was always sitting on my lap or riding in the goatskin on my back and in my dreams she always appeared to me two nights after this other men armed with knives and muskets came into our tent they were albanians brave men my mother told me they only stayed a short time my sister anastasia sat on the knee of one of them and when they were gone she had not three but two silver coins in her hair one had disappeared they wrapped tobacco in strips of paper and smoked it and i remember they were uncertain as to the road they ought to take but they were obliged to go at last and my father went with them soon after we heard the sound of firing the noise continued and presently soldiers rushed into our hut and took my mother and myself and anastasia prisoners they declared that we had entertained robbers and that my father had acted as their guide and therefore we must now go with them the corpses of the robbers and my father's corpse were brought into the hut i saw my poor dead father and cried till i fell asleep when i awoke i found myself in a prison but the room was not worse than our own in the hut they gave me onions and musty wine from a tarred cask but we were not accustomed to much better fare at home how long we were kept in prison i do not know but many days and nights passed by we were set free about easter time i carried anastasia on my back and we walked very slowly 
for my mother was very weak, and it is a long way to the sea, to the Gulf of Lepanto. On our arrival, we entered a church in which there were beautiful pictures in golden frames. They were pictures of angels, fair and bright, and yet our little Anastasia looked equally beautiful as it seemed to me, and in the center of the floor stood a coffin filled with roses. My mother told me it was the Lord Jesus Christ who was represented by these roses. Then the priest announced, Christ is risen, and all the people greeted each other. Each one carried a burning taper in his hand, and one was given to me as well as to little Anastasia. The music sounded, and the people left the church hand in hand with joy and gladness. Outside the women were roasting the paschal lamb. We were invited to partake, and as I sat by the fire, a boy, older than myself, put his arms round my neck and kissed me, and said, Christ is risen, and thus it was that for the first time I met Aptanides. My mother could make fishermen's nets, for which there was a great demand here in the bay, and we lived a long time by the side of the sea, the beautiful sea that had a taste like tears, and in its colors reminded me of the stag that wept red tears, for sometimes its waters were red, and sometimes green or blue. Aptanides knew how to manage our boat, and I often sat in it, with my little Anastasia, while it glided on through the water, swift as a bird flying through the air. Then when the sun set, how beautifully deeply blue would be the tint on the mountains, one rising above the other in the far distance, and the summit of Mount Parnassus rising above them all like a glorious crown. Its top glittered in the evening rays like molten gold, and it seemed as if the light came from within it. For long after the sun had sunk beneath the horizon, the mountaintop would glow in the clear blue sky. The white aquatic birds skimmed the surface of the water in their flight, and all was calm and still as amid the black rocks at Delphi. I lay on my back in the boat. Anastasia leaned against me, while the stars above us glittered more brightly than the lamps in our church. They were the same stars, and in the same position over me, as when I used to sit in front of our hut at Delphi, and I had almost begun to fancy I was still there, when suddenly there was a splash in the water, Anastasia had fallen in, but in a moment Aptanides had sprung in after her, and was now holding her up to me. We dried her clothes as well as we were able, and remained on the water till they were dry, for we did not wish it to be known what a fright we had had, nor the danger which our little adopted sister had incurred, in whose life Aptanides had now a part. The summer came, and the burning heat of the sun tinted the leaves of the trees with lines of gold. I thought of our cool mountain home and the fresh water that flowed near it. My mother, too, longed for it, and one evening we wandered towards home. How peaceful and silent it was, as we walked on through the thick wild thyme, still fragrant, though the sun had scorched the leaves. Not a single herdsman did we meet, not a solitary hut did we pass. Everything appeared lonely and deserted. Only a shooting star showed that in the heavens there was yet life. I know not whether the clear blue atmosphere gleamed with its own light, or if the radiance came from the stars, but we could distinguish quite plainly the outline of the mountains. My mother lighted a fire, 
and roasted some roots she had brought with her and i and my little sister slept among the bushes without fear of the ugly Shmedradgi. according to suspicion among the greeks this is a monster produced from the unopened entrails of slaughtered sheep which have been thrown away in the fields from whose throat issues fire or the wolf and the jackal for my mother sat by us and i considered her presence sufficient protection we reached our old home but the cottage was in ruins and we had to build a new one with the aid of some neighbors chiefly women the walls were in a few days erected and very soon covered with a roof of olive branches my mother obtained a living by making bottle cases of bark and skins and i kept the sheep belonging to the priests who were sometimes peasants a peasant who can read is often made a priest he is addressed as most holy sir and the other peasants kiss the ground on which he has stepped while i had for my playfellows anastasia and the turtles once our beloved aptanides paid us a visit he said that he had been longing to see us so much and he remained with us two whole happy days a month afterward he came again to wish us good-bye and brought with him a large fish for my mother he told us he was going in a ship to corfu and potras and he could relate a great many stories not only about fishermen who lived near the gulf of lepanto but also of kings and heroes who had once possessed greece just as the turks possess it now i have seen a bud on a rose-bush gradually in the course of a few weeks unfold its leaves till it became a rose in all its beauty and before i was aware of it i beheld it blooming in rosy loveliness the same thing had happened to anastasia unnoticed by me she had gradually become a beautiful maiden and i was now also a stout strong youth the wolf-skins that covered the bed in which my mother and anastasia slept had been taken from wolves which i had myself shot years had gone by when one evening aptanides came in he had grown tall and slender as a reed with strong limbs and a dark brown skin he kissed us all and had so much to tell of what he had seen of the great ocean of the fortifications at malta and of the marvellous sepulchres of egypt that i looked up to him with a kind of veneration his stories were as strange as the legends of the priests of olden times how much you know i exclaimed and what wonders you can relate i think what you once told me the finest of all he replied you told me of a thing that has never been out of my thoughts of the good old custom of the bond of friendship a custom i should like to follow brother let you and i go to church as your father and anastasia's father once did your sister anastasia is the most beautiful and most innocent of maidens and she shall consecrate the deed no people have such grand old customs as we greeks anastasia blushed like a young rose and my mother kissed aptanides at about two miles from our cottage where the earth on the hill is sheltered by a few scattered trees stood the little church with a silver lamp hanging before the altar i put on my best clothes and the white tunic fell in graceful folds over my hips the red jacket fitted tight and close the tassel on my fez cap was of silver and in my girdle glittered a knife and my pistols 
Aptanides was clad in the blue dress worn by the Greek sailors. On his breast hung a silver medal with the figure of the Virgin Mary, and his scarf was as costly as those worn by rich lords. Everyone could see that we were about to perform a solemn ceremony. When we entered the little unpretending church, the evening sunlight streamed through the open door on the burning lamp and glittered on the golden picture frames. We knelt down together on the altar steps, and Anastasia drew near and stood beside us. A long white garment fell in graceful folds over her delicate form, and on her white neck and bosom hung a chain entwined with old and new coins, forming a kind of collar. Her black hair was fastened into a knot, and confined by a headdress formed of gold and silver coins which had been found in an ancient temple. No Greek girl had more beautiful ornaments than these. Her countenance glowed, and her eyes were like two stars. We all three offered a silent prayer, and then she said to us, Will you be friends in life and in death? Yes, we replied. Will you each remember to say, whatever may happen, my brother is a part of myself, his secret is my secret, my happiness is his, self-sacrifice, patience, everything belongs to me as they do to him? And again we answered, yes. Then she joined our hands and kissed us on the forehead, and we again prayed silently. After this a priest came through a door near the altar and blessed us all three. Then a song was sung by other holy men behind the altar screen, and the bond of eternal friendship was confirmed. When we arose, I saw my mother standing by the church door, weeping. How cheerful everything seemed now, in our little cottage by the Delphian Springs. On the evening before his departure, Aptanides sat thoughtfully beside me on the slopes of the mountain. His arm was flung around me, and mine was round his neck. We spoke of the sorrows of Greece, and of the men of the country who could be trusted. Every thought of our souls lay clear before us. Presently I seized his hand. Aptanides, I exclaimed, there is one thing still that you must know, one thing that till now has been a secret between myself and heaven. My whole soul is filled with love, with a love stronger than the love I bear to my mother and to thee. And whom do you love? asked Aptanides, and his face and neck grew red as fire. I love Anastasia, I replied. Then his hand trembled in mine, and he became pale as a corpse. I saw it, I understood the cause, and I believe my hand trembled too. I bent towards him, kissed his forehead, and whispered, I have never spoken of this to her, and perhaps she does not love me. Brother, think of this. I have seen her daily. She has grown up beside me, and has become a part of my soul. And she shall be thine, he exclaimed. Thine. I may not wrong thee, nor will I do so. I also love her. But to-morrow I depart. In a year we will see each other again. But then you will be married, shall it not be so? I have a little gold of my own. It shall be yours. You must and shall take it. We wandered silently homeward across the mountains. It was late in the evening when we reached my mother's door. Anastasia held the lamp as we entered. My mother was not there. 
she looked at Aptanides with a sweet but mournful expression on her face. "'Tomorrow you are going to leave us,' she said. "'I am very sorry.' "'Sorry?' he exclaimed, and his voice was troubled with a grief as deep as my own. I could not speak. But he seized her hand and said, "'Our brother yonder loves you, and is he not dear to you? His very silence now proves his affection.' Anastasia trembled and burst into tears. Then I saw no one, thought of none but her. I threw my arms round her and pressed my lips to hers, as she flung her arms round my neck. The lamp fell to the ground, and we were in darkness, dark as the heart of poor Aptanides. Before daybreak he rose, kissed us all, and said, Farewell, and went away. He had given all his money to my mother for us. Anastasia was betrothed to me, and in a few days afterward she became my wife. End of The Shepherd's Story of the Bond of Friendship Section 26 of Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Ginger Kukulo Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 1 1835-1842 by Hans Christian Andersen Translated by H. P. Paul A Rose from Homer's Grave All the songs of the East speak of the love of the nightingale for the rose in the silent starlight night. The winged songster serenades of fragrant flowers. Not far from Smyrna, where the merchant drives his loaded camels, proudly arching their long necks as they journey beneath the lofty pines over holy ground, I saw a hedge of roses. The turtle dove flew among the branches of the tall trees, and as the sunbeams fell upon her wings, they glistened as if they were mother of pearl. On the rose bush grew a flower, more beautiful than them all, and to her the nightingale sung of his woes. But the rose remained silent, not even a dewdrop lay like a tear of sympathy on her leaves. At last she bowed her head over a heap of stones and said, Here rests the greatest singer in the world. Over his tomb will I spread my fragrance, and on it I will let my leaves fall when the storm scatters them. He who sung of Troy became earth, and from that earth I have sprung. I, a rose from the grave of Homer, am too lofty to bloom for a nightingale. Then the nightingale sung himself to death. A camel driver came by, with his loaded camels and his black slaves. His little son found the dead bird, and buried the lovely songster in the grave of the great Homer, while the rose trembled in the wind. The evening came, and the rose wrapped her leaves more closely round her, and dreamed, and this was her dream. It was a fair, sunshiny day. A crowd of strangers drew near who had undertaken a pilgrimage to the grave of Homer. Among the strangers was a minstrel from the north, the home of the clouds and the brilliant lights of the aurora borealis. He plucked the rose and placed it in a book, and carried it away into a distant part of the world, his fatherland. The rose faded with grief, and lay between the leaves of the book, which he opened in his own home, saying, Here is a rose from the grave of Homer. Then the flower awoke from her dream, and trembled in the wind. 
a drop of dew fell from the leaves upon the singer's grave the sun rose and the flower bloomed more beautiful than ever the day was hot and she was still in her own warm asia then footsteps approached strangers such as a rose had seen in her dream came by and among them was a poet from the north he plucked the rose pressed a kiss upon her fresh mouth and carried her away to the home of the clouds and the northern lights like a mummy the flower now rests in his iliad and as in her dream she hears him say as he opens the book here is a rose from the grave of homer end of a rose from homer's grave recording by ginger cuculo section twenty seven of hans christian anderson fairy tales and short stories volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by ginger cuculo hans christian anderson fairy tales and short stories volume one eighteen thirty five to eighteen forty two by hans christian anderson translated by h p paul the buckwheat very often after a violent thunderstorm a field of buckwheat appears blackened and singed as if a flame of fire had passed over it the country people say that this appearance is caused by lightning but i will tell you what the sparrow says and the sparrow heard it from an old willow tree which grew near a field of buckwheat and is there still it is a large venerable tree though a little crippled by age the trunk has been split and out of the crevice grass and brambles grow the tree bends forward slightly and the branches hang quite down to the ground just like green hair corn grows in the surrounding fields not only rye and barley but oats pretty oats that when ripe look like a number of little golden canary birds sitting on a bough the corn has a smiling look and the heaviest and richest ears bend their heads low as if in pious humility once there was also a field of buckwheat and this field was exactly opposite to old willow tree the buckwheat did not bend like the other grain but erected its head proudly and stiffly on the stem i am as valuable as any other corn said he and i am much handsomer my flowers are as beautiful as the bloom of the apple blossom and it is a pleasure to look at us do you know of anything prettier than we are you old willow tree and the willow tree nodded his head as if he would say indeed i do but the buckwheat spread itself out with pride and said stupid tree he is so old that grass grows out of his body there arose a very terrible storm all the field flowers folded their leaves together or bowed their little heads while the storm passed over them but the buckwheat stood erect in its pride bend your heads as we do said the flowers i have no occasion to do so replied the buckwheat bend your head as we do cried the ears of corn the angel of the storm is coming his wings spread from the sky above to the earth beneath he will strike you down before you can cry for mercy but i will not bend my head said the buckwheat close your flowers and bend your leaves said the old willow tree do not look at the lightning when the cloud bursts even men cannot do that in a flash of lightning heaven opens and we can look in but the sight will strike even human beings blind 
what then must happen to us who only grow out of the earth and are so inferior to them if we ventured to do so inferior indeed said the buckwheat now i intend to have a peep into heaven proudly and boldly he looked up while the lightning flashed across the sky as if the whole world were in flames when the dreadful storm had passed the flowers and the corn raised their drooping heads in the pure still air refreshed by the rain but the buckwheat lay like a weed in the field burnt to blackness by the lightning the branches of the old willow tree rustled in the wind and large water drops fell from his green leaves as if the old willow were weeping then the sparrows asked why he was weeping when all around him seemed so cheerful see they said how the sun shines and the clouds float in the blue sky do you not smell the sweet perfume from flower and bush wherefore do you weep old willow tree then the willow told them of the haughty pride of the buckwheat and of the punishment which followed in consequence this is a story told to me by the sparrows one evening when i begged them to relate some tale to me end of the buckwheat recording by ginger cuckolo Section 28 of Hans Christian Andersen's Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine G. Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 1, 1835-1842 by Hans Christian Andersen, translated by H. P. Paul. Ole Lukkøye, the Dream God. There is nobody in the world who knows so many stories as Ole Lukkøye, or who can relate them so nice. In the evening, while the children are seated at the table, or in their little chairs, he comes up the stairs very softly, for he walks in his socks. Then he opens the doors without the slightest noise, and throws a small quantity of very fine dust in their eyes, just enough to prevent them from keeping them open, and so they do not see him. Then he creeps behind them, and blows softly upon their necks, till their heads begin to droop. But Ole Luke does not wish to hurt them, for he is very fond of children, and only wants them to be quiet, that he may relate to them pretty stories and they never are quiet until they are in bed and asleep. As soon as they are asleep, Ole Lukkøye seats himself upon the bed. He is nicely dressed. His coat is made of silken stuff. It is impossible to say of what colour, for it changes from green to red, and from red to blue, as he turns from side to side. Under each arm he carries an umbrella, one of them, with pictures on the inside, he spreads over the good children, and then they dream the most beautiful stories the whole night. But the other umbrella has no pictures, and this he holds over the naughty children so that they sleep heavily, and wake in the morning without having dreamed at all. Now we shall hear how Ullukøya came every night during a whole week to the little boy named Jalmar, and what he told him. There were seven stories, and there are seven days in the week. Monday now pay attention, said Ole Lukke in the evening, when Jalmar was in bed, and I will decorate the room. 
Immediately all the flowers in the flower-pots became large trees, with long branches reaching to the ceiling, and stretching along the walls, so that the whole room was like a greenhouse. All the branches were loaded with flowers, each flower as beautiful and as fragrant as a rose, and, had any one tasted them, he would have found them sweeter even than jam. The fruit glittered like gold, and there were cakes so full of plums that they were nearly bursting. It was incomparably beautiful. At the same time sounded dismal moans from the table-drawer in which lay Yalmud's school-books. "'What can that be now?' said Ole Lukere, going to the table and pulling out a drawer. It was a slate, in such distress because of a false number in the sum, that it had almost broken itself to pieces. The pencil pulled and tugged at its string as if it were a little dog that wanted to help, but could not. And then came a moan from Yalmar's copy-book. Oh, it was quite terrible to hear. On each leaf stood a row of capital letters, every one having a small letter by its side. This formed the copy. Under these were other letters, which Yalmar had written. They fancied they looked like the copy, but they were mistaken for they were leaning on one side, as if they intended to fall over the pencil lines. "'See, this is the way you should hold yourself,' said the copy. "'Look here, you should slope thus, with a graceful curve.' "'Oh, we are very willing to do so, but we cannot,' said Yalma's letters. "'We are so wretchedly made.' "'We must be scratched out, then,' said Ole Lukier. "'Oh, no!' they cried, and then they stood up so gracefully it was quite a pleasure to look at them. "'Now we must give up our stories and exercise these letters,' said Ole Lukea. "'One, two, one, two.' So he drilled them till they stood up gracefully, and looked as beautiful as Copy could look. But after Ole Lukea was gone, and Yalmar looked at them in the morning, they were as wretched and awkward as ever. Tuesday. As soon as Yalmar was in bed, Ole Lukea touched— with his little magic wand, all the furniture in the room, which immediately began to chatter, and each article only talked of itself. Over the chest of drawers hung a large picture in a gilt frame, representing a landscape, with fine old trees, flowers in the grass, and a broad stream which flowed through the wood, past several castles, far out into the wild ocean. Ole Lukeja touched the picture with his magic wand, and immediately the birds commenced singing, the branches of the trees rustled, and the clouds moved across the sky, casting their shadows on the landscape beneath them. Then Ole Lukeje lifted little Yalmar up to the frame, and placed his feet in the picture, just on the high grass, and there he stood with the sun shining down upon him, through the branches of the trees. He ran to the water, and seated himself in a little boat which lay there, and which was painted red and white. The sails glittered like silver, and six swans, each with a golden circlet round its neck, and a bright blue star on its forehead, drew the boat past the green wood, where the trees talked of robbers and witches, and the flowers of beautiful little elves and fairies, whose history the butterflies had related to them. Brilliant fish, with scales like silver and gold, swam at the boat, sometimes making a spring and splashing the water round them, while birds, red and blue, small and great, flew after him in two long lines. The gnats danced around them, and the cockchafers cried, Buzz, buzz! They all wanted to follow Yalmar, and all had some story to tell him. It was a most pleasant sail, 
Sometimes the forests were thick and dark, sometimes like a beautiful garden, gay with sunshine and flowers. Then he passed great palaces of glass and marble, and on the balconies stood princesses, whose faces were those of little girls whom Yalma knew well and had often played with. One of them held out her hand, in which was a heart made of sugar, more beautiful than any confectioner ever sold. As Yalmar sailed on, he caught hold of one side of the sugar-heart, and held it fast, and the princess held fast also, so that it broke into two pieces. Yalmar had one piece, and the princess the other, but Yalmar's was the largest. At each castle stood little princes acting as sentinels. They presented arms, and had golden swords, and made it rain plums and tin soldiers, so that they must have been real princes. Yalmar continued to sail, sometimes through woods, sometimes as it were through large halls, and then by large cities. At last he came to the town where his nurse lived, who had carried him in her arms when he was a very little boy, and had always been kind to him. She nodded and beckoned to him, and then sang the little verses she had herself composed and said to him, How oft my memory turns to thee, my own Yalmar ever dear, when I could watch thy infant glee, a kiss away her pearly tear. T'was in my arms thy lisping tongue first spoke the half-remembered word, while over thy tottering steps I hung, my fond protection to afford. For well I prayed a heavenly power to keep thee till thy dying hour. And all the birds sang the same tune, the flowers danced on the stems, and the old trees nodded, as if Ulalukea had been telling them stories as well. Wednesday. How the rain did pour down! Yalmar could hear it in his sleep. And when Ulalukea opened the window, the water flowed quite up to the window sill. It had the appearance of the large lake outside, and a beautiful ship lay close to the house. Wilt thou sail with me to-night, little Yalmar? said Ulalukea. Then we shall see foreign countries, and thou shalt return here in the morning. All in a moment there stood Yalmar, in his best clothes, on the deck of the noble ship, and immediately the weather became fine. They sailed through the streets, round by the church, and on every side rolled the wide great sea. They sailed till the land disappeared, and then they saw a flock of storks, who had left their own country, and were travelling to warmer climates. The storks flew one behind the other, and had already been a long, long time on the wing. One of them seemed so tired that his wings could scarcely carry him. He was the last of the row, and was soon left very far behind. At length he sunk lower and lower, with outstretched wings, flapping them in vain, till his feet touched the rigging of the ship, and he slided from the sails to the deck, and stood before them. Then a sailor-boy caught him, and put him in the hen-house, with the fowls, the ducks, and the turkeys, while the poor stork stood quite bewildered amongst them. "'Just look at that fellow!' said the chickens. Then the turkey-cock puffed himself out as large as he could, and inquired who he was, and the ducks waddled backwards, crying, "'Quack, quack!' Then the stork told them all about warm Africa, of the pyramids, and of the ostrich, which— 
like a wild horse, runs across the desert. But the ducks did not understand what he said, and quacked among themselves. We are all of the same opinion, namely, that he is stupid. Yes, to be sure, he is stupid, said the turkey cock, and gobbled. Then the stork remained quite silent, and thought of his home in Africa. Those are handsome thin legs of yours, said the turkey cock. What do they cost a yard? Quack, 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 grinned the ducks, but the stork pretended not to hear. You may as well laugh, said the turkey, for that remain was rather witty, or perhaps it was above you. Aha, is he not clever? He will be a great amusement to us while he remains here. And then he gobbled, and the ducks quacked. Gobble, gobble, quack, quack. What a terrible uproar they made, while they were having such fun among themselves. Then Yalmar went to the hen-house, and, opening the door, called to the stork. Then he hopped out on the deck. He had rested himself now, and he looked happy, and seemed as if he nodded to Yalmar, as if to thank him. Then he spread his wings, and flew away to warmer countries, while the hens clucked, the ducks quacked, and the turkey-cock turned quite scarlet in the head. "'Tomorrow you shall be made into soup,' said Yalmar to the fowls, and then he awoke and found himself lying on his little bed. It was a wonderful journey with Ulle that made him take this night. Thursday "'What do you think I have got here?' said Ulle "'Do not be frightened, and you shall see a little mouse.' And then he held out his hand to him, in which lay a lovely little creature. "'It has come to invite you to a wedding. Two little mice are going to enter into the marriage state to-night.' They reside under the floor of your mother's storeroom, and that must be a fine dwelling-place. "'But how can I get through the little mouse-hole in the floor?' asked Yalmar. "'Leave me to manage that,' said Ulle "'I will soon make you small enough.' And then he touched Yalmar with his magic wand, whereupon he became less and less, until at last he was not longer than a little finger. "'Now you can borrow the dress of the tin soldier. I think it will just fit you.' It looks well to wear a uniform when you go into company. Yes, certainly, said Yalmar, and in a moment he was dressed as neatly as the neatest of all tin soldiers. Will you be so good as to seat yourself in your mamma's thimble, said the little mouse, that I may have the pleasure of drawing you to the wedding. Will you really take so much trouble, young lady, said Yalmar, and so in this way he rode to the mouse's wedding. First they went under the floor, and then passed through a long passage, which was scarcely high enough to allow the thimble to drive under, and the whole passage was lit up with the phosphorescent light of rotten wood. "'Does it not smell delicious?' asked the mouse, as she drew him along. "'The wall and the floor have been smeared with bacon-rind. Nothing can be nicer.' Very soon they arrived at the bridal-hall. On the right stood all the little lady-mice, whispering and giggling, as if they were making game of each other. To the left were the gentlemen mice, stroking their whiskers with their forepaws, and in the centre of the hall could be seen the bridal pair, standing side by side, in a hollow cheese rind, and kissing each other, while all eyes were upon them, for they had already been betrothed, and were soon to be married. More and more friends kept arriving, till the mice were nearly treading each other to death, for the bridal pair now stood in the doorway, and none could pass in or out. The room had been rubbed over with bacon-rind, like the passage, which was all the refreshment offered to the guests, 
but for dessert they produced a pea, on which a mouse belonging to the bridal pair had bitten the first letters of their names. This was something quite uncommon. All the mice said it was a very beautiful wedding, and that they had been very agreeably entertained. After this, Yelmar returned home. He had certainly been in grand society, but he had been obliged to creep under a room and to make himself small enough to wear the uniform of a tin soldier. Friday. It is incredible how many old people there are who would be glad to have me at night, said Ulle especially those who have done something wrong. Good little Ulla, say they to me, we cannot close our eyes, and we lie awake the whole night, and see all our evil deeds, sitting on our beds like little imps, and sprinkling us with hot water. Will you come and drive them away, that we may have a good night's nice rest? And then they sigh so deeply and say, we would gladly pay you for it. Good night, Ulla, look. The money lies on the window. But I never do anything for gold. "'What shall we do to-night?' asked Yalmar. "'I do not know whether you would care to go to another wedding,' he replied, "'although it is quite a different affair to the one we saw last night. "'Your sister's large doll, that is dressed like a man, and is called Herman. "'It is also the doll's birthday, and they will receive many presents.' "'Yes, I know that already,' said Yalmar. "'My sister always allows her dolls to keep their birthdays "'or to have a wedding when they require new clothes.' That has happened already a hundred times, I am quite sure. Yes, so it may, but to-night is the hundred and first wedding, and when that has taken place it must be the last, therefore this is to be extremely beautiful. Only look. Yalma looked at the table, and there stood a little cardboard doll's house, with lights in all the windows, and drawn up before it were the tin soldiers, presenting arms. The bridal pair was seated on the floor, leaning against the leg of the table, looking very thoughtful, and with good reason. Then Ole Lukeia, dressed up in grandmother's black gown, married them. As soon as the ceremony was concluded, all the furniture in the room joined in singing a beautiful song, which had been composed by the lead pencil, and which went to the melody of a military tattoo. What merry sounds are on the wind, as marriage rights together the wind, a quiet and a loving pair, though formed of kid, yet smooth and fair. Hurrah, if they are deaf and blind, will sing the word of proven kind. And now came the present, but the bridal pair had nothing to eat, for love was to be their food. Shall we go to a country house or travel? asked the bridegroom. Then they consulted the swallow, who had travelled so far, and the old hen in the yard, who had brought up fine broods of chickens and the swallow talked to them of warm countries where the grapes hang in large cluster on the wines, and the air is soft and mild, and about the mountains glowing with colours more beautiful than we can think of. "'But they have no red cabbage like we have,' said the hen. "'I was once in the country with my chickens for a whole summer. There was a large sandpit in which we could walk about and scratch as we liked. Then we got into a garden in which grew red cabbage. Oh, how nice it was!' I cannot think of anything more delicious. But one cabbage stalk is exactly like another, said the swallow, and here we have often bad weather. Yes, but we are accustomed to it, said the hen. But it is so cold here, and freezes sometimes. Cold weather is good for cabbages, said the hen. Besides, we do have it warm here sometimes. Four years ago, we had a summer that lasted more than five weeks, 
and it was so hot one could scarcely breathe and then in this country we have no poisonous animals and we are free from robbers he must be wicked who does not consider our country the finest of all lands he ought not to be allowed to live here and then the hen wept very much and said i have also travelled i once went twelve miles in a coop and it was not pleasant travelling at all the hen is a sensible woman said the doll bertha i don't care for travelling over mountains just to go up and come down again no let us go to the sand-pit in front of the gate and then take a walk in the cabbage garden and so they settled in saturday am i to hear more stories asked little Almar, as soon as ole lukea had sent him to sleep we shall have no time this evening said he spreading out his prettiest umbrella over the child look at these chinese and then the whole umbrella appeared like a large china bowl with blue trees and pointed bridges upon which stood the little chinamen nodding their heads we must make all the world beautiful for to-morrow morning said ole lukea for it will be a holiday it is sunday i must now go to the church steeple and see if the little sprites who live there have polished the bells so that they may sound sweetly then i must go into the fields and see if the wind has blown the dust from the grass and the leaves and the most difficult task of all which i have to do is to take down all the stars and brighten them up i have to number them first before i put them in my apron and also to number the places from which i take them so that they may go back into the right holes or else they would not remain and we should have a number of falling stars for they will all tumble down one after the other hark ye mr lukea said an old portrait which hung on the wall of yalmar's bedroom do you know me i am yalmar's great-grandfather i thank you for telling the boy stories but you must not confuse his ideas the stars cannot be taken down from the sky and polished they are spheres like our earth which is a good thing for them thank you old great-grandfather said ole lukea i thank you you may be the head of the family as no doubt you are but i am older than you i am an ancient heathen the old romans and greeks named me the dream god i have visited the noblest houses and continue to do so still i know how to conduct myself both to high and low and now you may tell the stories yourself and so ole lukea walked off taking his umbrella with him well well one is never to give an opinion i suppose grumbled the portrait and it woke yalmar sunday good evening said ole lukea yalmar nodded and then sprang out of bed and turned his great-grandfather's portrait to the wall so that he might not interrupt them as it had done yesterday now said he you must tell me some stories about five green peas that lived in one pod or of the chickseed that courted the chickweed or of the darning needle who acted so proudly because she fancied herself an embroidery needle you may have too much of a good thing said ole lukea you know that i like best to show you something so i will show you my brother he is also called ole lukea but he never visits any one but once and when he does come he takes him away on his horse and tells him stories as they ride along he knows only two stories one of these is so wonderfully beautiful and no one in the world can imagine anything at all like it but the other is just as ugly and frightful so that it would be impossible to describe it then ole lukea lifted yalmar up to the window there now you can see my brother the other ole lukea 
He is also called Death. You perceive he is not so bad as they represent him in picture books. There he is a skeleton, but now his coat is embroidered with silver, and he wears a splendid uniform of a hussar, and a mantle of black velvet flies behind him over the horse. Look how he gallops along. Yalmar saw that as this Ulluluke rode on, he lifted up old and young and carried them away on his horse. Some he seated in front of him, and some behind, but always inquired first. How stands the mark-book? Good, they all answered. Yes, but let me see for myself, he replied, and they were obliged to give him the books. Then all those who had very good, or exceedingly good, came in front of the horse, and heard the beautiful story, while those who had middling, or tolerably good, in their books were obliged to sit behind, and listen to the frightful tale. They trembled and cried, and wanted to jump from the horse, but they could not get free, for they seemed fastened to the seat. "'Why, death is a most splendid looker,' said Yalmar. "'I am not in the least afraid of him.' "'You need have no fear of him,' said Ole Luker, "'if you take care and keep a good conduct book.' "'Now I call that very instructive,' murmured the great-grandfather's portrait. "'It is useful sometime to express an opinion.' So he was quite satisfied. These are some of the doings and sayings of Ulluluqea. I hope he may visit you himself this evening and relate some more. End of section twenty eight. Ulluluqea, the dream god. Recording by Christine G. in Oslo, Norway. The fifteenth of January two thousand and twelve. Section 29 of Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eve Lynn. Hans Christian Andersen, Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume 1, 1835-1842, by Hans Christian Andersen. Translated by H.P. Paul. The Swineherd. Once upon a time lived a poor prince. His kingdom was very small, but it was large enough to enable him to marry, and marry he would. It was rather bold of him that he went and asked the emperor's daughter, Will you marry me? But he ventured to do so, for his name was known far and wide, and there were hundreds of princesses who would have gladly accepted him. But would she do so? Now we shall see. On the grave of the prince's father grew a rose tree, the most beautiful of its kind. It bloomed only once in five years, and then it had only one single rose upon it, but what a rose! It has such a sweet scent that one instantly forgot all sorrow and grief when one smelt it. He had also a nightingale, which could sing as if every sweet melody was in its throat. This rose in the nightingale he wished to give to the princess, and therefore both were put into big silver cases and sent to her. The emperor ordered them to be carried into the great hall, where the princess was just playing, Visitors are coming, with her ladies-in-waiting. When she saw the large cases with the presents therein, she clapped her hands for joy. "'I wish it were a little pussycat,' she said. But then the rose-tree with the beautiful rose was unpacked. "'Oh, how nicely it is made!' exclaimed the ladies. "'It is more than nice,' said the emperor. "'It is charming.' The princess touched it and nearly began to cry. "'For shame, Pa,' she said. "'It is not artificial. It is natural.' "'For shame, it is natural,' repeated all her ladies. Let us first see what the other case contains before we are angry, said the emperor. Then the nightingale was taken out, and it sang so beautifully, 
that no one could possibly say anything unkind about it. Superbe, Chamont, said the ladies of the court, for they all prattled French, one worse than the other. How much the bird reminds me of the musical box of the late lamented Empress, said an old courtier. It has exactly the same tone, the same execution. You are right, said the emperor, and began to cry like a little child. I hope it is not natural, said the princess. Yes, certainly it is natural, replied those who had brought the presents. Then let it fly, said the princess, and refused to see the prince. But the prince was not discouraged. He painted his face, put on common clothes, pulled his cap over his forehead, and came back. Good day, emperor, he said. Could you not give me some employment at the court? There are so many, replied the emperor, who apply for places, that for the present I have no vacancy. But I will remember you. But wait a moment. It just comes into my mind. I require somebody to look after my pigs, for I have a great many. Thus the prince was appointed imperial swineherd, and as such he lived in a wretchedly small room near the pigsty. There he worked all day long, and when it was night he had made a pretty little pot. There were little bells round the room, and when the water began to boil in it, the bells began to play the old tune. A jolly old sow once lived in a sty. Three little piggies had she. But what was more wonderful was that, when one put a finger into the steam rising from the pot, one could at once smell what meals they were preparing on every fire in the whole town. That was indeed much more remarkable than the rose. When the princess with her ladies passed by and heard the tune, she stopped and looked quite pleased, for she also could play it. In fact, it was the only tune she could play, and she played it with one finger. That is the tune I know, she exclaimed. He must be a well-educated swineherd. Go and ask him how much the instrument is. One of the ladies had to go and ask, but she put on pattens. What will you take for your pot? asked the lady. I will have ten kisses from the princess, said the swineherd. God forbid, said the lady. Well, I cannot sell it for less, replied the swineherd. "'What did he say?' said the princess. "'I really cannot tell you,' replied the lady. "'You can whisper it into my ear.' "'It is very naughty,' said the princess, and walked off. But when she had gone a little distance, the bells rang again so sweetly. A jolly old sow once lived in a sty. Three little piggies had she. "'Ask him,' said the princess, "'if he will be satisfied with ten kisses from one of my ladies.' "'No, thank you,' said the swineherd. Ten kisses from the princess, or I keep my pot. That is tiresome, said the princess, but you must stand before me so that nobody can see it. The ladies placed themselves in front of her and spread out their dresses, and she gave the swineherd ten kisses and received the pot. That was a pleasure. Day and night the water in the pot was boiling. There was not a single fire in the whole town of which they did not know what was preparing on it, the chamberlains as well as the shoemakers. The ladies danced and clapped their hands for joy. We know who will eat soup and pancakes. We know who will eat porridge and cutlets. Oh, how interesting! Very interesting indeed, said the mistress of the household. But you must not betray me, for I am the emperor's daughter. Of course not, they all said. The swineherd, that is to say, the prince, but they did not know otherwise than that he was a real swineherd, did not waste a single day without doing something. He made a rattle, which, when turned quickly round, played all the waltzes, gallops, and polkas known since the creation of the world. But that is superb, said the princess passing by. I have never heard a more beautiful composition. Go down and ask him what the instrument costs, but I shall not kiss him again. He will have a hundred kisses from the princess, said the lady, who had gone down to ask him. 
I believe he is mad, said the princess, and walked off. But soon she stopped. One must encourage art, she said. I am the emperor's daughter. Tell him I will give him ten kisses, as I did the other day. The remainder one of my ladies can give him. But we do not like to kiss him, said the ladies. That is nonsense, said the princess. If I can kiss him, you can also do it. Remember that I give you food and employment. And the lady had to go down once more. A hundred kisses from the princess, said the swineherd, or everybody keeps his own. Place yourselves before me, said the princess then. They did as they were bidden, and the princess kissed him. I wonder what the crowd near the pigsty means, said the emperor, who had just come out on his balcony. He rubbed his eyes and put his spectacles on. The ladies of the court are up to some mischief, I think. I shall have to go down and see. He pulled up his shoes, for they were down at his heels, and he was very quick about it. When he had come down into the courtyard, he walked quite softly, and the ladies were so busily engaged in counting the kisses, that all should be fair, that they did not notice the emperor. He raised himself on tiptoe. "'What does this mean?' he said, when he saw that his daughter was kissing the swineherd, and then hit their heads with his shoe, just as the swineherd received the sixty-eighth kiss. "'Go out of my sight,' said the emperor, for he was very angry, and both the princess and the swineherd were banished from the empire. There she stood and cried, the swineherd scolded her, and the rain came down in torrents. "'Alas, unfortunate creature I am,' said the princess. "'I wish I had accepted the prince. Oh, how wretched I am!' The swineherd went behind a tree, wiped his face, threw off his poor attire, and stepped forth in his princely garments. He looked so beautiful that the princess could not help bowing to him. "'I have now learned to despise you,' he said. "'You refused an honest prince. You did not appreciate the rose and the nightingale, but you did not mind kissing a swineherd for his toys. You have no one but yourself to blame.' And then he returned to his kingdom and left her behind. She could now sing at her leisure. "'A jolly old sow once lived in a sty. Three little piggies has she.' End of the Swineherd Recording by Eve Lynn End of Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories Volume 1, 1835-1842 by Hans Christian Andersen Translated by H. P. Paul